Chapter One of The Three Friends, A Story of Rugby in the Forties, by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One The Sixth Match. Alan Gordon, called sometimes north by his friends as being a thorough Scotchman, was seated in his study in the schoolhouse, rugby, on a bright October day in the forties, evidently in no happy state of mind. His head rested on his hands, his elbows on the table, and before him was a paper on which he had been drawing faces of a boy about his own age, fresh and good-looking, as bright and cheery as he was downcast and melancholy. How jolly, he said at last, to be liked by everyone. I wish I could. Before he had finished the sentence, his door was burst open, and in rushed the friend of whom he was thinking. A boy of about fifteen, tall for his age, with a sunny Greek face and an expression singularly winning and attractive. I've got my cap, he said, and I'm going to play against the sixth this afternoon. Hurrah! But Gordon did not stir or say anything. Then said Fleming, the newcomer, I say, old chap, aren't you glad? Glad, answered Gordon, starting up, his strong, somewhat stern Scotch features flashed with excitement. Of course I am. Awfully glad, but I was thinking of something else. Hark, do you hear them? That cheering is for you. How jolly it must be to be liked by everyone. Well, said Fleming, I suppose so, if you think of it, but I don't think of it. Look here, where shall I play? Inside the scrimmage or outside? Oh, outside, of course, answered Gordon, and if you get a chance, run in. I wish I were playing inside to have a go at Potter for licking you the other day. The great brute. What right had he to touch you merely for being on the island, just as if you were a fag? Well, three of our fellows have sworn to lame him if they get a chance, so never you mind, Alan. But what's that you were doing when I came in? Drawing faces and dreaming in the dump, said Gordon, covering the paper with his hand. And when Fleming pressed to see it, he said, it's only the face of a fellow I once knew. You once knew? You old donkey, why, it's me. What do you mean by once knowing? I never see you now. Humbug, I can't be everywhere. Come along, Alan, and help me choose my cap and all the other things. And off they went, Fleming doing the talking. That afternoon was no ordinary match. The sixth had made itself unpopular of late through the overzeal and roughness of some of its members, and on this day, as hacking was then the rule, many old scores of vengeance or antipathy were to be paid. Above all, Potter was singled out for punishment. He was one who gloried in unpopularity, saying that, as he could not be a jolly fellow, he would be a brute. And as such, he pushed his rights as a preposter to extremes, and caned fellows for the merest trifles. Consequently, there was a conspiracy on foot to pay him off, and certain big fifth-form fellows of the class, commonly called good hacks, who, though they did little else in the game, were good in giving and receiving hacks vowed to give it him. Fight neither with small nor great, fight only with the king of Israel, was their plan of action, and as Potter had lots of pluck, was also famous among other things as a good hack. Bloody shins on both sides were certain to follow. Those were the times, happily long past, when a rule had to be made. Was it not written in a little blue book called The Rules of Football? That you might not hack and hold a fellow at the same time. No penalty attended the violation of this rule, but public opinion fairly well enforced it. 
the proscribed practice probably dated from prehistoric times, remotely connected with savage ancestors, and though it had little real football in it, was long supposed to be one chief glory of the rugby game. Now, I'm not going to describe a football match in Toto, or attempt to vie with Tom Brown's immortal schoolhouse match, as well attempt to write afresh Achilles' vengeance upon Hector, or tell again how Aeneas made Turnus rue it for the death of Pallas. Pallas te hoc vulnere, Pallas immolat. So under the walls of windy Troy, and on the plains of Latium, in the very heart of a great contest, raged an implacable vendetta, and so under the windy elms of the classic rugby close did the fatal three, careless of all meaner ends, pursue their hated victim Potter. The sixth might win, the school be licked into a cocked hat, but for them the one interest in the game, the one object in the field, was to lame Potter. It was a close game, the school having reduced the number of their side till it was about a third more than their opponents, had also to some extent imitated their tactics. Beside the usual full-backs, the triare of old, were light skirmishers answering to the present half-backs who had to seize the ball when issuing from a scrimmage, and to do the best they could. Among these Fleming had a place found him, being attached as a squire to a knight, to Twining, the best half-back on the school side. And then came that weary waiting time before kick-off, when the keen player, conscious of a great gap in the region of the waist, shivers with excitement, not with fear, not with cold, not with anxiety as to the result, but with that strange fever of the nerves which seems to pinch him in the center, so that the leathern waistband has to be taken in several holes. Wasp, the great fighters of the insect world, have discovered this, and in the course of ages have reduced their waists, the emotional center of the wasp tribe, to a minimum. Without this they would be tortured by that sense of central hollowness of which Fleming was now conscious. When will they begin is always the thought of the young player of fifteen. Till then, however calm outwardly, his nerves are all on fire within. When will they end? Is oftener the feel of his older captain, who sees the forces of his side exhausted, so that as the evening closes in, they can hardly stay the ball from crossing the line. At last, the kick is made, the ball is off and the great scrimmage under the three elm trees, which is to last, in these rude ancient times, for ten minutes, is begun. Potter, the chief forward of the sixth, led on his side well, with his short, sturdy, thick-set figure, like a dwarfed Hercules. He wedged his way through his opponents, always on the ball, so long as he could find it, or if he lost it, forcing a path through to the other side, and returning back to recover it. Little they then thought of tactics, or screwing, or healing out, or such like miserable devices of these scientific days. It was one long, dense, determined shove of breast to breast and shoulder to shoulder, while well-shod boots were dealing savage hacks upon defenseless shins. And above all rose, in the clear, frosty air, a human steam, acceptable, it is to be hoped, to the powers who watch over football, over the breathless contest of youthful pluck and endurance in the well-fought field, and still the scrimmage went on. In such a melee it was not easy, as may be imagined, 
for the three to find out Potter, nor for Potter to be conscious of the fell purpose of the three. When he did so, he did not flinch. Once he came upon their outside member, and feeling his assault, returned it with a kick, as the other described it afterwards, like that of a mad bullock, and passed on unheeding. One to one he was more than a match for them. But at last, when in the thickest of the press he met them full in front, then ensued a conflict which we will not describe particularly, enough to say that all thought of the game as a game was forgotten, and the private vendetta was fought out to the bitter end. Even after the scrimmage was over, the fight still continued, and if the wrong done to Fleming was avenged, yet the avengers carried away marks which, however honorable as scars, were nonetheless painful and disabling. Some of the scars of football, it is said, men carry to their graves. But to return to the game, to be a good halfback there is needed a quick eye, a light foot, and a lithe body, dissolving, as it were, into vapor as you meet an opponent's charge, and forming again with the old onward impetus on the other side. All these Fleming had in perfection, and though still too young for any great feats, he again and again executed short runs or neat kicks into touch. Passing was then unknown, which earned him the applause of Twining, his immediate superior. Once even a nod and grunt of approval from the head of his side. Then at last came his opportunity. The sixth that year was weak. Most of their old champions had passed away to Oxford and Cambridge, and Potter, although still game and dauntless as ever, had lost much of his first dash and deadly onset owing to his late encounter. Slowly the ball was driven back past the three trees, along the touch-line, towards the island goal, until at last a good throw-out landed it just at the feet of Twining, who seized it and made a dash for the sixth goal, closely followed by Fleming. The distance was not great, and shouts of collar him, strangle him, hack him over, rose like a scream or yell from the sixth side, while all their swiftest runners were upon him in an instant. In vain his writhing, in vain his struggles, in vain his wrestling tricks against the octopus clutch of his pursuers. The goal was not for him. Gripped round the waist by one, throttled round the neck by another, while a third tightly clasped his legs and ankles, he was thrown down, half-choked and strangled on the grass, letting the ball escape him as he fell, which, as it bounded, was snatched up by Fleming, who, after a short, swift course of wondrous twists and dodges, like a hunted hare, under the arms, almost through the legs of his opponents, lodged it safely across the line. Then arose, there were no umpires in those days, the usual roar of voices. Our ball, offside, ya, bah, on this side and on that, like a pack of hounds fighting over a quartered fox, till the strife was promptly quelled by the head of the school, a tall, dignified person in whiskers, who had a conscience and a trial was awarded to the school. This was, as we now say, converted, and amid wild tumult of enthusiasm, conquerors and conquered changed sides, scowling as they went. Then occurred an incident of rare mark even in the annals of rugby. On the sixth side was a player belonging to the schoolhouse, who, like the Black Knight and Ivanhoe, had hitherto taken little part in the game. His cap was new, his jersey untorn, his white trousers unblemished by a stain. He had been into no scrimmage, and made none of those brilliant rushes which 
by the admiration of lookers-on. Standing apart, nearer to the backs, but not one of them, he had often seemed about to get the ball, but from want of quickness or ill luck, he had always seen it fall into the hands of another. Nothing as yet had been done by him to justify his house name of the switcher, but now at last, when the school, encouraged by success, were pressing the sixth hard and seemed near upon a second goal, fortune suddenly favored him. The ball passing from the scrimmage near to the Barbie entrance by the headmaster's garden was kicked by someone. Why did he not run with it? Straight for the sixth goal, where the switcher was standing. He caught it up, tucked it under his arm, and started into sudden life, was off with the speed of lightning. He's off. Look out. Stop him, the school leaders shouted. They knew their danger. Once give the switcher his chance, and you might as well try to stop a winner of the derby. In a moment, running around all obstacles, he had reached the three trees, and though Twining, followed by Fleming running close behind, clutched him by the jersey, he tore himself from his grasp, and parrying the attack of the back player by a push from his long arm, he went through the small fry of the school side like a hot knife through a pat of butter, and placed the ball between the goal posts. It was all over in a few seconds, a splendid sprint of over a hundred yards, and when he returned with head thrown back, fierce look, and proud impatient twitching of the shoulders, he was greeted with acclamations by his own side. And even the ranks of Tuscany could scarce forbear to cheer. They had simply watched him as he ran, in stupid amazement. He was indeed the switcher, and that run-in, the really splendid feature of rugby football, became proverbial. It had covered the whole distance from goal to goal. Yet that evening, after the goal was kicked, and the combatants retired to their houses, it was discussed by younger members of the schoolhouse at the passage fires whether Fleming would not have stopped him had he been two years older. He was close on Twining, and Twining, but for the torn jersey, might have held him. Anyhow, Fleming had made a grand beginning, and the old house had covered itself with glory on both sides. The sixth, of course, were a lot of brutes, stuck up and meddling with everything, but now that Potter was lamed, even he came in for his share of praise. They could not help admiring his pluck and staunchness. And as to the switcher, he might be a brute if he liked, but in none of the other houses in Rugby was there another brute who could hold a candle to him. So they yarned on at the passage fire with a pleasant drowsy sense of having seen something heroic that afternoon and with the latent joy, it was Saturday, of having no first lesson the next morning. Then suddenly a rapid step was heard descending the stairs from the fifth-form room, which they recognized as the dreaded switchers, and vanished, all save one, promptly to their studies, while the loiterer's course was accelerated as he departed gnawing an apple by a kick from the great man's slippered toe and an exhortation to be quick. This, however, was in character and was much appreciated. Even the kicked one was proud of the adventure, and did not complain. Meanwhile, Fleming, resisting all invitations to sup elsewhere, was sitting dreamily in Gordon's study, talking over the match, and discussing its prospects in the future. Their friendship had only dropped a stitch, as had so often before happened. Now it was in full work again. "'Glad Potter caught it,' said Gordon. He deserved it. I hate hacking, replied the other. It's not the game. What, not in the sixth match? All fair and war, you know. 
Perhaps so, said Fleming, but it spoils football. I'll get rid of it some day, if I'm a swell. It's not the game. Well, said Gordon, packing is to be given up, who's to begin? You can't explain to a fellow in a scrimmage that you don't like hacking. Of course you don't like it, especially if he's twice your height. But suppose he hacks you, what are you to do? How are you to begin? Oh, the swells will give it up first, and then the thing is done. That's always the way here. Yes, and in other places, and other things, my dear boy, if you can only find the true swells, and get them to give up what is bad and out of date, the thing is done. We are all as sheep, and follow where we are well led. But how to find the swells? Ah, there is the difficulty. Then, as they went up to bed, Gordon said, Nothing like a reserve, quite fresh on your side, when the others are blown and tired. That's how battles are won. No, said Fleming, it's not that. It's having a switcher. End of chapter 1